The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Mark Simon to my podcast. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm very good. Good. I think many people associate, or at least I know for a long time, I associated you with Taluna, but you are now doing something very different. What are you up to these days? Yeah. So I've sort of disappeared off the radar for a little bit for those in the research industry. I, um, I left uh, Taluna at the beginning of last year, in 2019. I moved back to the UK because I've been living in the States for a few years and joined an IT a SaaS business called Datto. Fantastic business. It's actually headquartered in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is close to where I was living. How ironic. Yeah, it was Connecticut and Unicorn. <laughs> so <laughs> a distinction. And that gig came to, came to a close in the summer and I've just set up my consulting business, helping small SaaS businesses get going because that's so I can talk about my experience, but have a lot of background in that and get involved in advisory work and, and helping um, small businesses to exit as well. It's a very exciting time. Sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like you have your doing bits and pieces of different things in terms of helping companies scale and grow. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's really about small tech companies reaching the goals they want to reach, whether it's investor commitments or goals they set themselves, or they may be bumping up against the ceiling and helping them get past that. Got it. And give us a little bit of your journey up till you leaving Toluna. I would love to understand how you arrived to where you are today. Yeah, well, it's a sort of fairly meandering story. Actually, after university, I lived in Paris for a couple of years, taught English for a while, which gave me a huge amount of respect for teachers. So the whole sort of homeschooling thing this last few months is like, just brought it back to me how difficult a job that is. I was teaching English in a high school and actually in France, if if you don't pass your equivalent of high school diploma, you have to go back and do it again year after year. And I think I was 20 years old at the time. And there were kids in that school the same age as older than me. So I had to sort of pretend that I was older and I'd sort of wear, you know, old sport jackets with, you know, patch, almost like geography teachers do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Eventually I found out how old I was at the end and all hell broke loose discipline wise. But that was fun. That's funny. And then for most of my 20s, totally unrelated to research, I was in bands, I was in rock and roll bands and touring and doing all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah, it was great. Um, but like 99.99% of everybody never really <laughs> got anywhere. We had some fun doing it. But about mid to late 20s, I was like, I've got to actually do some got to concentrate on a career right ended up going to work employee number two in a marketing agency which was really zero revenue at the time and we um we actually got on the contract to take aol to, to handle aol uk which was for those that you're old enough remember they used to spam the entire world with cds to load up to software right? okay <laughs> it's very uncool compared to what i was doing during the day when i was you know in the evening sorry doing uh, in the band stuff but it was really it was really great fun we got from zero to five million very fast and i just got a, a bit bored to be honest and was hunting around for something new to do 
had to get married and uh, buy a house and ended up going to as a, dropping down and becoming a sort of an individual contributor for a company called Greenfield Online in Europe, two sales guys and a VP in Europe. And that was really a classic period. A lot of people at that time have gone on to become leaders or founders or kind of leaders and shakers in the industry. I was only there for a year and I really, uh, really enjoyed it, learned a lot. And then um, I got the call from Frederic at Toluna, who said, hey, we're going to take the company public. We've got less than a million dollars, euros, pounds, whatever. Right. Newsbill, we're going to list on the London Stock Exchange and I'd like you to lead, lead that. And I was pretty convinced he'd asked everybody else in the industry. They'd all down for being absolutely out of his mind. And I said, no, why not? You know, I've got to pay for a wedding, I've got to pay for a house. Yeah, why not? Let's take a huge risk. And it was one of the smartest things I ever did, absolutely. You know, we, we just were on a rocket ship, really. That went from, again, from zero to sort of get the exact figures, but sort of 25, 30 million dollars in the UK. Um, the pound rate was substantial eight figures, anyway. And then I um, went on to, we had to always had proprietary technology, some great tech, building communities, DIY surveys, and so forth, but no one had owned it. So I set up the, the digital practice and we went to market in a proper way. Got that to eight figures. That was great fun. And then Frederick said, right, we have a bit of an issue in our North American business. You know, like to go and turn it around. And then that was a pretty substantial eight-figure business. And the client went over there and was lucky enough to be part of that turnaround. We did that fairly quickly and, and then stayed for six years until I came back. So that's kind of, there you go, 20 plus years in, in five minutes. That's amazing. It's fun, yeah. Well, before we dive into the professional side, what did you play in the band? Were you a lead singer or what instrument did you play? I was not a lead singer, guitar, and I still have a very, very, very bad guitar acquisition habit. So oh, gosh. late nights plus eBay plus a couple of glasses of wine or um, some unnecessary purchase. So we won't talk. That's funny. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing career thus far in terms of your experiences at Toluna and, and kind of, it seems like you've changed roles internally, not quite frequently, but frequently to keep things fresh and to learn something different. Is that true? Yeah, well, I think there's always a thread going through that it's go to market. So you know, whether it's sales or it's working digital marketing or the product side, you know, really customer facing side of things. But yeah, most comfortable, I think, just driving businesses. I think, you know, MDs, managing directors, CEOs, whatever, you know, should really be amongst the strongest salespeople in any organization. And you know, I've always enjoyed that role. So as you know, we are focused on trying to help founders, C-level executives through a, a series of different interviews that I'm doing to kind of learn from leaders such as yourself in terms of how to think about scaling their business. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario and I'd love to get your feedback. Imagine you're a five to $10 million company. Let's say, I think five is different than 10. Let's say you're a $10 million company. What do you have to think about when you think about scaling? Yeah, I think with at any point in your your company's trajectory, you've got to sort of think and act like you're you're bigger than you are. So you know, one you think about five, and at five you think about ten, and ten you think you know, thirty or whatever. And that, and that comes from like the, the CEO down to you know the people that you hire. So a couple of things. I think one is when you hire hiring is critical. I, the, the, I was spending, I'd say, sort of seventy, eighty percent of my time either hiring or coaching people. And I think if you don't do that as a leader in a sort of business that's trying to scale, then you're probably focused on the wrong things. It depends. It, I mean, it varies enormously depending on the, the 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 type of business you're in. But that's certainly my experience in sort of fast moving companies. 
when it comes to people, just always look for people who would kind of act one level up and but could also think two levels up. So if they were a salesperson, they, you know, they could sort of act like a sales manager in terms of taking responsibility, but they had that capability to kind of be a sales leader, for example, sales director. And that was something that we always look for in terms of hiring. And I think in every business, whether it's software or it's professional services or have you, you've got to think about some way to have recurring business, which is not a very, probably not a light bulb moment for anyone who's listening to this, but it doesn't have to be a SaaS model. It just has to be some repeatable, predictable cash flow because you're building value in the company and people, whether they're investors or their clients, or whatever, you want to see that you've got future cash flow and low risk of that cash flow not being right. So that's really what we, we look for. And then, you know, at 10 million, you've really got to start making sure that all these sort of incentives are aligned, I think, aligned in the business. So, you know, the examples would be, you know, making sure that your customer success and your sales organization have exactly the same kind of result. You know, they're shooting towards the same thing. So I've been in companies before where, you know, some people get paid on bookings, some people get paid on recognized revenues, some people get paid on invoicing, and that just creates a disparity of, of, activity, of, of activity that can be actually quite detrimental to a company that's trying to go fast. That's actually quite a big one. And find a way to pay for long-term quality revenues. So, you know, really overemphasize rewards for long-term contracts, you know, good payment, churn, uh, payment terms, you know, low, low churn, all those sorts of things. That, those are really important too. Because it's a leaky bucket, it's actually what kills you, right? It's not really the, the fast growth. You've got to make sure you have all the clients you've got. So although this is ostensibly like a sales or scale conversation, I'd always focus on, on the customer delight ahead of necessarily just acquisition. Because I think it's really important to make sure you don't lose customers. They love you and they talk about you to other people. And then I think at you know, 5 million, it's quite different to 10. At 5 million, there are some things that have to sit on the CEO's table. They can't go anywhere else, like products and you know, product direction, product management, pricing, stuff like that. As you get bigger, you can start to have other people take some of those things. And then for metrics, I mean, if you're 10 million, I'd really start to put in place things to make sure that the company could definitely exceed that rule of 40. And that's particularly important for any kind of recurring revenue business, particularly software businesses. Um, but I think you could probably look at that for a research firm as well. And by that, all of 40, um, if you've heard of that, that's really where you take the revenue percentage growth and you add it to the EBITDA percentage. And if those two become more than 40 consistently, right, not just one year, but consistently, then you've got a really fast moving business. You're in a good spot. So really that was, you know, that we're trying to get the business set up so that you know, the metrics would, would, would kind of deliver that kind of, um, that kind of rule of 40 uh, outcome. So those would be some of the things. And then, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, don't, I've worked in international environments for nearly all of my career and the, the urge to, to whack another office on the content page is almost overwhelming sometimes, you know, and that can be extremely dangerous to do that, to expand too fast, too quickly, not having the right cultural understanding of what works well in different places. You know, I, when I moved to the States, you know, I've lived and worked in three countries and I moved to the States, I you know, made lots of mistakes about how to do business and I've seen it everywhere. But the idea with international is that 85-15, so 85% of the stuff is, is um, actually exactly the same, whichever country. And the 15% is actually really, really important because <laughs> that's the cultural sensitivity. It's the way you do. That's where the acceptance is. That's where the acceptance is, right? So, you know, I've, I, you know whether it's a data or to learn or other companies I've worked for, we've always made sure that we, we try to be like, you know, really focus on that localization. But I, 
yeah, having 25 offices, if you're doing $50 million of revenue, seems like an extravagance. And I, you know, that first international expansion is something that should be taken very, very seriously because it can be a... Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Let's talk about people. You know, I do think that salespeople sometimes have the tendency to get a bad rap for whatever reason. It's, you know, personality differences, internal versus external. You know, I can go on and you know the list as well. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that at the core, a salesperson is the same across the board? Like if you're looking for a good salesperson, are you looking for the same characteristics in each person, not personality, but key characteristics to ensure that there's alignment and, you know, a clear understanding and grasp of the sales process. Yeah, I mean, there are clearly differences between somebody who's in a very transactional environment to someone who's operating in a really sort of long sales cycle enterprise environment of some sort, that there are differences. But I think there are a few things that are common to any kind of salesperson and successful salespeople, definitely. Well, that's the key, successful, right? Yeah. And I actually built a couple of companies now, scorecards when we're doing the hiring process, because interviewing salespeople can be a really, I mean, a lot of people are very bad at interviewing. Mm-hmm. They'll either look for people to be like them, or they'll like, they'll like people who are similar to them or them. Or the same, you know, they'll be interviewed by five people and they'll ask them the same questions. You're not finding out stuff that, you know, in different scenarios. So right. we always build a framework for hiring salespeople that would, would like basically weight or index certain things that are really important. And the three things that are always important, regardless of whatever environment you're in, in my opinion, coachability, mm-hmm. the ability to take on feedback and implement it and to, and to be better at it, whatever the task is, that competitive streak. Doesn't mean they have to run out, you know, sort of throw their colleagues under the bus or, or steal deals or anything, but they have to be super competitive and they should have ideally um, some track record of, of success in some other field, whether it's sports or some competitive activity. That I always think is important. And then the one thing that gets misunderstood by most people when they think about salespeople, if they're not salespeople themselves, is that either empathy, rapport building, and listening. That I, mean, I put them all together. If you're good at building rapport, you're good at listening, you can empathize with the buyer, you're competitive, and also you can learn, i.e. you're coachable, then you're almost certainly going to have a strong hire. And then it's down to cultural values and how they fit in with the team, that sort of thing, which is obviously very situational. That's great. That's actually really an important point is you could have all three, but then if the cultural alignment doesn't exist, it can be very painful internally. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the cultural fit is important, you know, that's something that uh, yeah, I absolutely think is you have to test for, and you have to get different people who maybe not in the um, in the sales team to be able to talk to them as well to assess you know the the fit there. I think definitely that idea of moving toxic high performers out is quite an important. If you've got someone who's, who's an enormous troublemaker but hits their numbers, I would actually not 
And that's something that often a lot of sales leaders want to keep in their business because they bring the numbers, but actually, you know, this, the impact that person might on the team is just, is just not worth. Right. The drama. Absolutely. Okay. So let me ask you this. So you have a CEO that is, you know, I think we spoke before that, you know, many founders, when they start their company, they tend to be more product oriented, focused on building their generalist ultimately, because then they drive the sales. At some point in time, that CEO has to hire a head of sales or chief revenue officer. And that's a scary decision because obviously there's all kinds of discussion around incentives and, you know, depending on what stage they bring that person into the company. What should that CEO be thinking about when they're thinking about hiring that person? Well, first of all, it's it's an extremely scary proposition, I think, for most CEOs, particularly if they've not come from a sales background, you know, let's say at five or 10 million, most CEOs are probably ideas or product people, they're sort of build it and they will come kind of thing, or you do such great work that we'll always get clients. And, and to a certain degree, that does get you to three, five million, maybe 10, but doesn't put it much further. So you do need to hire that head of sales or chief revenue officer. There's a few things I think, and again, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but I think you need someone, first of all, who has actually been a successful individual contributor. I think in the past, that's not the same as promoting the best performing salesperson to be the sales leader, right? That's <laughs> a different. And every C-suite, every leader has made that mistake in their career respect of promoting the best performing salesperson. It's, it's, it's a classic error. You sort of lose two hires, right? You lose your best salesperson and you gain a really inexperienced manager. I look for someone who has is great at hiring to that point we made earlier about how you bring people on and someone who could potentially could bring people with them that's important and someone who also you know candidly can move people along if necessary you know there'll be a change great at coaching great in that company life stage so you know if that person's worked just at ibm and you're you know a scrappy 10 million research firm or a social social media listening outfit like you don't that's just not that's going to be a really tough ask so life stage of the companies they've worked at their values you know are they you know integrity is they high integrity high transparency the things i'd be looking for and one thing that i think is again from non-sales people gets overlooked is their ability to be extremely analytical and numerate you know sales is increasingly a science as well as an art you know the days of just having a great relationship with someone it just doesn't work that way anymore. I've had multiple salespeople I've worked with over the years who go, oh, I've got a great relationship with so-and-so. And I, you know, we chat every Friday and I, we hang out for beers once in a while. And I'm like, yeah, but they're giving all of their business to the other guy or the other gal. I mean, it's like, it happens all the time. So someone who understands the data and is, does not overly rely on the relationship side. I mean, relationships are extremely important. Of course they are, but you have to be able to use data to understand, you know, to get your pattern recognition up. And some, a, a sales leader who says, oh, you know, I need that all to sales ops, which a sales operations team you typically get in a sales organization of, let's say, you know, maybe more than 20 or 30 people. That's a problem. That's a real red flag for me. They need to own and understand the numbers before they subcontract that responsibility to a kind of an analyst or a sales operations person. I completely agree. And even on the investment banking side, I see companies, you know, the first many, obviously, as you know, there's so many questions that you go through in, in terms of understanding a company and their path. And if you don't have those numbers, it's really hard for a potential acquirer investor to understand that you have a solid growth trajectory and that you understand the numbers, you understand the work you have to do, you know, X number of meetings per month translate to X number of proposals to X number of, you know, those numbers are so important. 
And it, to your other point, which I agree with is even though you might not have the time to do it at 5 million, you need to start thinking about it. You need to start thinking about what does this funnel look like so you can actually, frankly, hire appropriately and be able to deliver on those numbers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, one thing that's, um, if you're talking about smaller companies, let's say a couple million or whatever, the, the, one of the most basic things you do is if, you, if you're hiring your first salesperson, just make sure you hire two, right? Right, yeah. You know, salespeople by their nature, if, they, if you've hired well, will be competitive, right? So they'll look at each other. So that's actually the most, that's rule number one of, of sales management. Just have two, right? If you do nothing else, just have two of them. Like, and- yeah, it keeps it interesting. Okay. And what about if you are a person evaluating a company for that role? What does that person look for in that company? So on the employee side? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you've got, um, I think there's the sort of the intangible part, which is the values and the culture. They just got to align with what, you know, what you stand for. Right? I think that's almost like the first gate. If you don't go through that gate, just, just you know, don't, um, don't, don't, uh, don't go any further. Now, slightly more qualitatively, I think you want to look at Look at the investment structure. So, you know, who are the investors? You know, what their record like? What are the portfolio companies? You can see agencies at Saluna. We had some great portfolio sister companies that we sold to, but also partnered with. It was really helpful, but it showed also that the investors were kind of simpatico with what we were doing and understood the industry. Um, track record of the founders, of the C-suite. You know, have they been consistently successful? You know, if they have been, then it'll be a, an environment that requires success but also is more you know success is more likely to happen i'd also sometimes look for things like you know kind of exogenous events like I mean, at the moment we've got covid okay are you going into a an industry or a company where actually the events are creating situations where they could be successful so obviously zoom video is a classic example but there are plenty of others and companies that specialize in virtual events for example they're things that could really sort of just be that perfect storm and you could accelerate i'd talk to at least three customers if i could before talking just to, hey, what are they like? What's, you know, what they like to deal with? And then I've been to the data and, you know, data is available for virtually everything now, but I look at the addressable market, you know, are they, in, are they tapped out or have they got a long way to go? The rule of 40, which we talked about before, may be hard to get to in an evaluation phase, but you could, if you talk to a CFO in the interview, you almost certainly could figure that out. And if, if it's close, then that's, that's great. Even if you're a research firm, you grow up. 15, 20% and your EBIT is at 15%, okay, that's 30. That's not bad with research fund, that's pretty good. But uh, if you're a software business, expect it to be higher. And then I'd look at net retention, which I think is one of the, for me, is a really important one. And net retention defined as a group of customers you have one year later, you know, how much, what percentage of revenue is there 12 months later? So and that sort of takes into account, um, you know, Customers that go away, you know, upsells, cross sell, whatever. And if it's over 100% consistently, then you've got a business that's actually growing without any new client acquisition. That's really, and as a cash flow machine, that's really, that's a great sign. So, to give you an example, when SurveyMonkey went public a couple of years ago, I think it was now, yeah, the best in class business, amazing run business, and they were at 95. So, they weren't far off, but they weren't over 100. And it's quite, if you find one over 100, you're like, okay, that's really a great business to, to get involved with. Thank you so much to joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I look forward to keeping in touch and, you know, hopefully we'll have some other opportunities where we can collaborate in the future. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Seema. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. 
Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.